This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Inner peace requires that you start to listen and to act on what you hear. It is a multifaceted path where you work on self-love, not the ego's love. It is an unconditional love. The reason we can't love well those who are not in alignment with our own beliefs is because we don't know how to love ourselves unconditionally. We each contain within us our shadow side, the side that is clearly illustrated by those we encounter who agitate us. We need to love those parts of ourselves as well as the parts we like. We can work to change aspects of ourselves we don't like, but the starting point has to be unconditional self-love. We need to learn how to love ourselves before we can love others well. Jesus, the ascended master, not the religious being, showed us what perfect love is like. It is a wonderful goal to embody that feeling and to project it outward in our everyday life says Teresa Joseph. In this episode, Teresa talks about her inner peace journey and how we can all find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Teresa Joseph is the author of Everyday Mystic, Finding the Extraordinary in the Ordinary. Everyday Mystic, Daily Messages for a Life of Love, Peace and Joy. And the Everyday Mystic blog. She is a mystic, spiritual mentor, intuitive healer, Reiki master and artist whose mission is to help others live their fullest, most joyful, and most loving life. Joseph guides readers through her popular Everyday Mystic series to fully embody the marriage between their humanity and their divinity, enabling them to bring deep inner peace, joy, and love into their lives. Prior to this, Teresa spent 18 years in finance at International Business Machines. She has a bachelor's degree in economics and an MBA in banking and finance. Here is the interview with Teresa Joseph. In your own words, who is Teresa Joseph? Mm, that's a good <laughs> question. So I am somebody who is on a very ordinary path in life, having gone through working 18 years at IBM. I got a degree in economics and an MBA, but never found, I think, the deeper meaning and the inner peace that I was always looking for. So I was on this journey of discovery. And that's what led me from finance into Reiki and the whole world of consciousness and energy. Um, yeah, and what a wonderful world, right? It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So before I begin uh, asking you some specific questions about lasting inner peace and your books, I have a few general questions. I call them warm-up questions, as I mentioned before recording. 
The first one is, what is another word for life? Mm, I would say love. Mm, that's beautiful. What is love? <laughs> and so I think love is something that it's almost an energy with which we live our lives. The life being kind of the outer manifestation of love. I think love with a capital L is what in essence created us and what we carry with us through life. And I think a lot of life is journey to express love in all its many forms. Yeah, I have later on, I'll be asking you some more questions about unconditional love. But for now, what do you think is the opposite of life or the opposite of love? The opposite of love, I would say fear. And, um, and I would say that because really the opposite of love is the ego and the ego in all of it, its manifestations are usually generated by fear. So I would say the opposite of love is maybe the ego would be an, a better answer, but the <laughs> ego or fear yeah. is the opposite of love. I like the way you connected life to love and ego to fear, right? Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of freedom to you? So that's interesting because I think the whole idea of freedom is also a lifelong journey. Yeah. Um, in my own case, I grew up in a family that was highly dysfunctional. So I thought freedom would be escaping that family. And um, without a lot of money, I thought freedom would be making a lot of money. And so as you or as I journeyed through life and saw what freedom meant to me at different times, what I found is that when you get that kind of freedom, it lasts for a short time and then you find something else that you need to be freed from. So I think what freedom means to be now is to be able to live life every day with whatever life throws at you, but at the same time, being able to maintain equanimity, to be able to maintain inner peace, to be able to maintain a loving attitude and love for even those people who are irritating you at that moment or worse. So to me, that's the lasting freedom that I found um, outside of kind of ego-generated solutions. Well, I like that. I like that a lot, Teresa. Um, I guess the question that comes to mind is, is there a difference between being calm and being peaceful? For me, there is. Um, <laughs> right. I was never what you would call a calm or peaceful person, yeah. but um, there are moments where I could be calm in a situation, but that just usually meant like the exterior was calm. And to be peaceful to me is a qualitatively different experience because when I hear peaceful, I think of inner peace. And so if I could be not calm, but really maintain inner peace, regardless of what's going on around me, 
then um, that's the state of being that I want. I think calmness is like a step toward inner peace. You know, you, you do want to be able to be calm and maintain that calm uh, in any situation. Yeah. But we want it to go deeper. Oh, I see. So to be calm, it kind of requires methods in a way, external methods, right? Being around na nature and all these things that we have to do in order to be calm, right? Right. Mm, I love that. Yeah, we'll be talking about inner peace in a minute, but then um, that triggered me to think about other questions now about inner peace. So um, would you say that being peaceful within um, also allows us to make major changes in our lives or just accepting what is happening as they happen the way they happen? <laughs> I think it's almost both. And let me explain. It, when we can attain inner peace, I think what happens is the way we react to situations around us changes. So then that changes the situation. Wow, I like that. The way we react to things that happen around us will change the situation itself. Exactly. Mm. And then the second part of your question, I think it's, it is also true that inner peace uh, requires some amount of acceptance. In fact, it, it requires total acceptance of the moment that is. So if people are uh, yelling and screaming around you, then the first thing is just to <laughs> not resist that, to just accept, right. okay, this is a situation I find myself in. This is who these people are, at least on the surface. And so that starting point already brings you peace. Mm, the acceptance, yeah, understanding. The acceptance. Right. Moving on with my general questions, what is your greatest joy? My children, there's yeah. no question. Yeah. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? I think the world's greatest need is unconditional love. Right. Mm, yeah. Who, where, and what is God to you? So I think God is the energy of love, the active energy of love that permeates all of life. It is a part of me and a part of you. It's a part of a tree. It's a part of a cat and a dog. It's just infused into everything. So I don't see God as a separate entity. I see it as part of who we are. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah, I believe that too. As you said earlier, do you connect love to God? You connected to life earlier. It's God also love, unconditional love? Yes, that's how I see. I see that energy that I call God as an unconditionally loving and accepting energy. And it's an unconditional love that doesn't make exceptions. It's not, well, I love everybody except you and you and you and you. <laughs> right, you. <laughs> right. I don't think God slices and dices. <laughs> like you said, no separation. Yeah. It's... No separation. Um, do you think that life 
has a grand purpose for all of us? So I was told in meditation that the meaning of life is very simple and it's all about love. And so I think that the only, I don't think there's a grand plan, but I think there's a grand state of being and it's the state of being, being in love with yourself and with the world. And that we have a lot of diversity in the world to help each of us get to that point of loving unconditionally, even those things that are not like ourselves. Right. And as you said, it starts with us loving ourselves unconditionally. That is huge. And it is the first step because we can't love anyone better than we love ourselves. And I'm not talking about the ego's love. I'm talking about that true, unconditional love that comes with deep humility to understand that I can love myself even though I'm not perfect, even though I have tons of room for improvement. The starting point has to be loving myself. And then I can work on each of those things that I want to improve. Yeah. And what a great, um, amazing state of mind, right? To uh, start working on ourselves. Yes. So let's talk about lasting inner peace. Talk to me about your most profound mystical experiences with Reiki. The most profound mystical experience was where I was at something called a Reiki exchange. So multiple and many people who practice Reiki will show up at one location so that we can work on each other. So um, I went to one of these, which was held in a community center gymnasium. We had probably 20 massage tables lined up in the middle of the gymnasium. They paired us off two at a time and they said, okay, take a table and work on each other. So it wasn't a particularly spiritual setting. And I didn't know much about Reiki at that time. I think I had only achieved level one Reiki out of the three levels that are available. And I was paired up with this gentleman who said I should lay on the table first and he would channel Reiki energy to me. And so it was a bit of a strange experience, but I laid on the table amongst all these other 20 people laying on the tables and 20 practitioners uh, working on each of those people. And all of a sudden Jesus appeared and I have to tell your listeners that I don't see Jesus as a religious figure. I see him as a uh, ascended master, if you will. And so he appeared to me. And it wasn't as if he came to me in the gymnasium. It's as if he reached in and pulled me across a veil is the only way I could describe it. That might be the differentiating vibration that separated me in that gymnasium from where Jesus is. And what I was able to see is one, there is no such thing as like a heaven that's up there. It's right here. It's just a different vibration, like right next to us, like right in front of us, all around us. 
and we just have to enter it. And so he pulled me into this space where I was with him and he communicated without the use of words and without having me have asked a question that the meaning of life, he said, it is so simple. It's all about love. And if somebody were to say those words to me in my normal waking life, I would say, that's nice. You know, <laughs> I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't get it. I read the news. I don't see it. You know, I, I look at family interactions. I don't see it. And what happened to me when he pulled me across that veil is he pulled me into the space of unconditional love. And that was profound. I couldn't make this up if I tried. <laughs> I could make up, maybe I could imagine mm -hmm. a Jesus that pulls me, you know, and says, oh, Teresa, here I am, blah, blah, blah. But mm -hmm. what I can't imagine is the feeling that he immersed me into. And it was so beautiful and so complete that even though I was at the time a wife, a mother of two children, and had a wonderful life in, in my own town, I didn't want to come back. I was just like, no, this is it. I'm, I am really happy here. But I did come back. And that was probably the experience that most set me on this path searching for what does that mean? I understand the words, you know, life is all about love. And I was immersed in the feeling. But how do I translate that into my everyday life? I was working at IBM easily 60 hours a week. I was always stressed. And I made it my mission to find out how do we bring the feeling that I was allowed to experience into our own life. And so that's been my journey. And then that's now what I teach. Wow. What an amazing experience to have, because that becomes a knowledge that it's hard to explain. It's very personal, but it's so powerful, isn't it? So powerful. Yeah, you can't live without it anymore. Now you know what is. Uh, what love is. Can you please explain to those who don't understand? I think I'm one of them. I don't understand much about uh, Reiki. Sure. Uh, Reiki is a Japanese form of energy healing or stress relief. It uses what in Reiki they call universal life force energy to help the body to heal itself. And the healing that occurs can happen at the mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual levels, or all of those. The Reiki practitioner uh, is nobody special. They learn how to use this Reiki technique to essentially channel this or bring through this universal life force energy. So they're bringing it through them into the person that they're working on. Okay, so it, it's basically energy healing. It is energy healing. Okay, 
Um, you mentioned um, Jesus earlier, uh, the Ascended Master. So I have a question. How is Jesus as the Ascended Master different from the uh, religious Jesus? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Not a religious <laughs> scholar, but what I feel is that the Jesus that I learned about in Catholicism when I was in Catholic school from kindergarten to third grade, and that's the extent of my religious education, it always seemed like there was a um, patriarchy that was being reinforced by the uh, religious Jesus. And there are a lot of rules that didn't seem to apply to the Jesus I met in that mystical experience. When he pulled me across, there was no patriarchy. There was no exclusion of anybody based on their beliefs or their sexual orientation. I mean, the love was so complete. And there was also no sense of anything punishing um, you know, that there was really any right or wrong. I mean, certainly we're going to live our lives based on what we think is right. But there was no sense that, well, if you do this, you will be punished and sent to hell or limbo. Or there, It didn't seem like any of that existed. Right. Oh, wow. So yeah. I see Jesus as a teacher for all time. But if we can separate him from the religion... Um, I think he, he becomes much more accessible. Right. Yeah, I heard about the Christ consciousness that might be the ascended master idea. Yes. Ideal. Going back to um, your journey in search of inner peace, I know you engaged in um, different methods to maintain that state. Let me see. I have them here. You mentioned talking to angels. Uh, was that one of them? Yes, that was one of the first things I tried. Right, right. Talk to me about that, Teresa. So I read a book by Trudy Griswold, and I can't think of the title right now, but it explained that we had angels all around us, and to hear them, all we had to do was engage them. So we should start talking to them. And where I worked at IBM, we didn't have a lot of opportunities to talk to angels, and I'm sure <laughs> they would have cute. thought we were insane to do so. But when I would come home, I'd read my book, and I would do what uh, Trudy Griswold said, and I would take out a piece of paper and write down my questions, um, the questions I had for my angels, and then I'd go to sleep, and she said, your angels will come to you. And sure enough, I would be woken up in the middle of the night and the angels would be talking to me. And uh, I would just write down whatever they said. And it was a very awkward process because I thought I really could be making that up. You know, did I just want to hear this answer or that answer? And what I did at the time was instead of judging it, I did question it. But instead of judging it, I just wrote down anything that I felt that they were saying and just put the book away. And so I just kept doing that. And that was that was many years ago now. But right. so I had those early messages. Do you still do this? You still talk to them? Um, 
Not anymore. No, I don't. And it's not deliberately. It's just that the journey kept evolving. And so I started by talking to my angels. But then in Reiki sessions that I was doing on private clients, Jesus would appear and he'd start talking or Mother Mary would appear and she would start talking. So I just followed the breadcrumb trail wherever it led me. I like that. Yeah following the the flow of life but um i have a question about intuition would you say that listening to our own intuition talking to angels um, are they the same and if they are what would be the difference between how do we know it's our intuition or the angels voices in uh, our own beliefs and our own desires that's a good question so I would not assume it's an angel talking to me, I think, unless I asked specifically, you know, for my angel to talk to me. Intuition is a powerful, powerful tool. And I do think that our intuition, in addition to being like reading whatever biologically or energetically what's around us, I do think that our intuition is our higher self. And I'll say like higher self with a capital H, capital S, speaking to us. So it is that part of us that's connected to whether it's the angels or God or, you know, source energy, universal life force energy. I think our intuition is that voice speaking to us, like what our higher self knows. And what happens, I think, a lot of times with intuition is we ignore it because oftentimes it may not be rational. Mm. Oh, wow. So I can give you an example if you want. Yes, um, that would be great. Very, very <laughs> simplistic. Um, I was walking with a few of my friends to the beach near my house, and my son was riding his bike. I want to say he was probably about six, so he knew how to ride a bike. And he was about 20 feet in front of me, mid-sentence with my girlfriend. I just broke off and started running toward mm. my son. Mm. As soon as I got there, it was just in time to catch him as he fell over. Oh, wow. And my girlfriend looked at me and she said, how did you know to do that? And I said, I didn't know. I said, intellectually, but something in me said, run like he needs you. So I think with that example, a lot of your listeners will think, wow, that's happened to me. I've done that. That's a time that I listened to my intuition and it was the right thing to do. And you're right. A lot of times doesn't make sense. And then we question with the intellectual mind. Exactly. Let's say the ego mind. Yeah. There's a lot of questioning. And what I do find with intuition is it happens usually very present moment. Like you have to act that moment at that very moment. Right. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, you also talked about um, the maintain the state of inner peace. You talked about doing Reiki on yourself. How is it possible and how is it done, actually? So um, this is part of the Reiki system. They do teach you that just as you can lay hands on somebody else to heal them, you can lay hands on yourself. 
to heal yourself. And again, you're just, it's, it's really about being conscious, putting your hands on yourself and saying, I channel this universal life force energy into myself to be used for my highest good. So it's really, you know, it's honoring yourself in the equation and understanding that um, just like you're there to heal others, you can heal yourself. So we actually don't need others to do, to perform the, uh, the energy healing at first. Can we start doing that on ourselves or should we begin? Absolutely. You can start as soon as you learn the Reiki one level healing, you can do Reiki on yourself. So here's the thing. And this is, you know, I'm not sure what the, the absolute answer to this is yet. But yes, we can do Reiki on ourselves. The problem is that if we're really suffering deeply, sometimes it's hard to get out of the way and just let that energy flow through you. So it does seem that there's a reason there's 7 billion of us here on the planet. Like I do think we're meant to somehow help each other. That's great. And, and maybe yeah. that's the only reason, you know, that, that mm. if I'm really in, um, in trouble, I want one of my Reiki friends there saying, you know, let me help you. Uh, because I don't feel then that I'm at the clearest channel at that moment. That's a great observation, though. Really great. And it's true. Yeah. And I love what he said that we are here with so many of others similar to us um, in a way we all one one thing, really one energy, one universal force to help one another. Yeah, I like that a lot. You also mentioned that you released yourself from the clutches of the ego. Can you tell me what did you do exactly? to release yourself from the ego and what does it feel like <laughs> not to, <laughs> to have it? <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Okay. There wasn't one thing. This is work that started in 1998. So it's mm. been going on for a long time right. and it's not done. And um, I have a feeling even on my deathbed, I'll be like, oh, right another ego lesson. <laughs> so right, right. what I did to start the journey, and I would just say I'm on that journey, um, is first to become aware of the difference between my ego self and my spiritual self. And uh, before I realized that there was a difference, I was probably blissfully unaware although blissful might be a strong word because I really was <laughs> blissful. Um, I was very unaware. And so I realized that everything in my life could be used as a lesson in how to release myself from the grips of my ego. And that is ongoing. I mean, there is almost everything we do, you know, everything we say. If we step back from a moment, for a moment and just ask ourselves, wow, where did I respond from? Was that my ego responding? Um, or was that my higher self responding? And usually the ego sets up a situation where there's a winner and a loser. And love sets up a situation where there are two winners. So 
it's pretty easy if we really want to start looking at where our ego is involved um, and be honest with ourselves. Any situation where you're like, let's say there was an argument and you are absolutely certain you were right, the other person's wrong, and they just have to come around to your point of view. Well, Mm. you can pretty much be sure (laughs) that's your ego directing that entire thing. And there may be a, quote, right or wrong answer. I mean, usually we're talking about things that are not mathematical. You know, this is life. So answers are gray. Regardless, even if the person is right or wrong, you have to be able to step back, put your ego back, and say, it's okay. This person truly thinks that their view is the right view. How can we come to some middle ground? But the only way you can do that is to step back and release your need to be right. And that's just one example. I mean, ego is a a very deep, deep, deep topic. And there are so many examples and it just weaves its way into our lives. One of the channel messages I received about ego, I was told that the ego is insidious. And it really is. Even people have egos about having no ego. Oh, Oh, I've done all that work. (laughs) I have no ego. And then like, as soon as you hear that, you're like, "Mm, well, I guess there's still something to do there. Or they have ego work, ego around being spiritual, or they have Mm. ego about being vegetarian. I mean, pick anything, but it can really crop up in so many ways. Wow. Have you met anyone who seemed to be, to you, it seemed to be um, ego-free? free from the ego? Hmm. On kind of an international stage, I would say whenever I see Eckhart Tolle speak, I think that man really does have an <laughs> ego. I think he's achieved it. On a more personal level, yeah, I think I, I have, have friends who are really so close, I think, like that have very little ego. Let's put it that way. So I think I'm lucky enough to know a few of those people. So how would you describe someone who is close or it's, uh, mm-hmm. has achieved, like you said, Eckhart Tolle? What is about him? Well, what is it about these people you know that inspires you to, to have this idea that they are ego-free? I think it's their serenity and their joy. And they're, um, when you're in the presence of so this, like more of a personal relationship, when you're in the presence of somebody who's ego free, you never feel like you have to defend yourself. Right. Um, you never feel mm. like you're being judged. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the other method you mentioned to maintain a state of inner peace was meditation. And I guess my question is, can you describe what it feels like when meditation is practiced the right way? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm not going to speak as an expert, like meditation teacher, where you know this is how this type of meditation should be versus another. I taught myself to meditate using Brian Weiss's guided meditation called "Achieving Inner Peace and Tranquility in Your Life," and so. 
to begin, I just followed along with his guidance and did exactly what he was saying. And I did that for a while until one day I turned on the meditation, the music started playing, and I realized that I was no longer hearing anything he said, and I was actually meditating. I was in my own space. My brain had slowed down. I wasn't thinking, which is really amazing. Um, And I felt more spacious. I felt like I, although I could sense my surroundings, I could hear the telephone ringing or somebody honking a horn outside. I wasn't reactive, which is a really new experience. So in my practice, I would say when I'm doing it right, according to the way I like to feel in meditation, that's the space I'm in where there can still be sound around me. There could be someone yelling across the street, but I am non-reactive. And my thoughts are almost, they're either zero thoughts going through my head or very few. And if they do go through, I just let them go. Mm, how interesting. And so, yeah, it's a space that's very, very peaceful and was not my natural state before I learned to meditate. So when you say I was not thinking or oh, no thoughts were there, do you actually mean that you're not giving attention to them? Is it possible really not to think? So that's a good question, too, because for me, there are times when there are actually thoughts and I'm just letting them go. But there are many times when I'm in a very deep meditation where there literally are no thoughts. And that doesn't mean that I'm not having experiences, but they are not in my brain. They are not thoughts about anything that's practical to my life. It's usually a space where I feel connected to source energy with a capital S. And so all kinds of an enlightening things happen <laughs> in that space. I often experience that state of being aware that I'm not the thoughts. And that's very interesting when you know you're not thoughts. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And you and you realize there's something above that or grander or larger than the thoughts that are generated by your brain. So what inspired you to look for that state of inner peace or lasting state of inner peace? I was raised in a household that was very abusive, alcoholism and all the dysfunction that goes with that. So I never actually experienced a peaceful environment. And When I went out, graduated college, started working, I thought maybe a peaceful environment would come from living on my own. And then I thought, well, maybe it will come because work is so stressful. Maybe it will come when I'm on vacation. (laughs) And in fact, it did. Um, Vacations were great. I was very (laughs) peaceful. But then the moment I got back to work or got back to everyday life, there was this level of stress and inner turmoil. So what I was looking for was a state of being that lasted past a vacation and that could be carried through everyday life. It could be carried through 
mothering two children, taking care of a dog, being married, working at IBM. I mean, there needed to be something that lasted. And I hadn't found that. And I didn't know I would find it with meditation or with Reiki. They were just steps on a path that I thought, okay, well, this hasn't worked. Maybe this will. So you tried uh, different methods. Would you say that one method uh, was more effective than, than others? No, I would say that it was the combination of all of the things I did, which were reading as much as I could get my hands on about um, the difference between the ego and what consciousness was. And practicing Reiki, because that took me out of my mind. You know, when I was using my brain, there, nothing would happen. When I would let go of my thoughts and my need to produce an outcome, people would heal. So that was an interesting experience for me. And, um, and then meditation came actually after that. And I found that meditation was another step and another way to be in that space where my mind wasn't directing the show. Wow. Do you still use those methods? I still meditate and I still read whatever I'm drawn to spiritually and finding teachers like Eckhart Tolle or Andrew Harvey, I mean, people who really have been on this path for a long time and can still help us in Ram Das. I love his work. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> He's so big fan of his. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm still reading and still practicing meditation. My Reiki practice has changed from something I call, from, from calling it Reiki to channeling grace. It's the same exact thing. It just... For me, channeling, channeling grace recognizes the role of the divine in the practice. Uh, the role of the divine. Yes. Wow, I would love to understand that better. How can we identify the divine when practicing uh, using these methods? Would you like to um, elaborate on that? That's a big topic, and actually, that's what my first book was about. Uh, the first book is called Everyday Mystic, Finding the Extraordinary in the Ordinary. And it is about that path of understanding how God shows up in your life. And what do you do with that once you see the presence of the divine or source energy in your life? So most of us think you connect with that energy once a week at some service for an hour and you sit there and you listen to people talk to you. But to me, that was never the experience of source energy. And so I, that always fell flat for me. And then Working and raising children, I never had really the luxury of going off to Bhutan or Tibet or, you know, India to an ashram. And I'm sure that would be wonderful. But I was faced with the prospect of learning about this while living an everyday, ordinary life, um, kind of while being in the chaos of, of our life. And so I think that's where um, I use then everyday practical experiences to determine where God was in them. 
So for instance, I would start with something very simple like, okay, God, energy, whatever you are, if you're there, I think you're a part of me. You know, I think we are God. So how are you going to help me? You know, how are you going to guide me? And by the way, that whole discussion comes in tandem with the idea of surrender and letting go of ego, right? So all these lessons are all wound into that one question. And so the question may be, should I have coffee or tea today? You know, should I actually meet with person (laughs) A today or should I cancel that? And so it was about like just tuning in and going, okay, what is it? Am I hearing something? Am I feeling something? And then just through practice, understanding what those feelings were, and then sometimes making the wrong choice and go, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, that really wasn't the right choice. Maybe I didn't hear clearly. Let me try this again. (laughs) And um one example was uh, I was driving, my, my son was about to enter high school, and we lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, so it's like a very high-intensity town. Everybody wants their kids to be like superstars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I was driving by thinking, okay, you know, what, what social studies and English track should he be on? And I'm not sure because... You know, if he's not in the honors track, he's going to get lost in the system someplace. And um, I was driving past the high school and having these thoughts and thinking, oh, I'm not going to stop there. I'll never get parking. I'll never be able to meet with the person I need to meet with because it's always very busy. And I kept hearing a voice say, turn around, turn around, turn around, go back to the school. So finally, a couple of miles past the high school, I listened, I turned around, I went back to the school. There was the parking spot right in the front, which is almost impossible. It never happens. And then I walked into the school and the teacher I needed to meet with, who would normally be in class all day, was right there in the hallway. So I came face to face with this person, had the discussion. He gave me the guidance I needed to place my son in the right program. And it was just done. It was that easy. Mm. And I thought, okay, so that voice that said, turn around. Do you know how many times we all hear those kinds of things and we just ignore it? Like, that's ridiculous because our logical brain kicks in and gives us all the reasons why that's not a good idea. So once I started on that path and I saw, wow, when we do follow that small voice, or sometimes it's a feeling. I mean, I actually hear things, um, but I also sometimes just get a feeling. What I found makes the difference in life for me is to act on what I hear and what I feel. And typically that's very irrational. It would sound irrational to most people. Yeah, now it makes sense because um, now we're talking about uh, the conditioned mind and programming. So mm-hmm. it will feel very unnatural to go against what we are used to, which is very challenging for us to change. So it makes sense. It's easier to just uh, do whatever we are doing, we have been doing, than just to do something completely different. Exactly. And especially when, again, you're engaged in 
life, like an ordinary life. Maybe you have a family. I mean, I had two children and I had a husband. So I also then there are things that would affect not just me. Um, so it really is a delicate balance of trying to find, you know, how do I act on this and still manage to exist within a marriage and as a functioning mother and volunteer within the community. So it's a delicate balancing act, but my husband was very supportive. So I do, I give him credit for that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that can be the case because the more the more engaged or the more involved uh, we are with the life that we built and we thought then it would be even more challenging, like you said, being a mother and a wife and now having to revise all that and make big changes will look very much illogical. Yeah, through the eyes of others, right, in society. Absolutely. And, you know, with my journey, it started with listening to small things like turn around, go to the high school, have this conversation. And then that led to, I think once you open that door and you really, with your heart, say to the universe, I want to live like this. I want to live as, in my words, as on God's jet stream. That's how I want to live my life. I'm going to leave the world of now I've trained as an economist and I have an MBA in banking and finance. It's a very logical, easy to justify. You know, you put things on a spreadsheet and they either add up or they don't add up. So you either (laughs) go this way or you don't go that way. So, but when it comes to being on God's jet stream, there's no such chart. There's no black and white. So you really have to come to learn humility, to surrender your ego, surrender your need to be right, and be willing to take that kind of leap of faith that says, I trust that as I step off this cliff, God's hands will appear. I think I had a dream once, and it was that scene. I stepped off a cliff, and God's hands appeared, and I walked right into his hands. And I said, because it probably wasn't so much a dream as a vision, I said to God at that point, I said, well, that was easy because your hands were there. And he said, no, my hands were there because you had faith. Mm, right. And how wonderful. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. there for all of us. And one of the things I try to make super clear in my book, Everyday Mystic, Finding Extraordinary in the Ordinary, is that you don't need to be special in any way to have these experiences. I don't have a special talent. My only desire was to find a life of inner peace and to really know God. If there is a God, then these things can happen. If there's not, then let me try and fall Mm -hmm. on my face and that will be the end of it. Oh my God. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, that that trust, right? Either way, you just trust goodness and greatness. And I would like to say about trust, it's not a straight trajectory from, Mm -hmm. let's say, like zero trust to 100% trust. It's a wavy line. It goes up and down, and hopefully it's trending up. Sometimes it's not (laughs) up and down, trending down, and it's a roller coaster ride. 
But if you just keep at it and put one foot in front of the other, you will find that the experience has, I don't know, much more peace and love and joy in it than anything you can conceive for yourself. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about unconditional love. Um, how is unconditional self-love connected to lasting inner peace, Theresa? Mm. So um, I always thought the reason I didn't have inner peace was something outside of me. Okay, well, it's a childhood home. Well, now it's not the childhood home. Now it's work. You know, it's not work. Now it's this person. And so what I learned very late in my life, and it was really through the Reiki um, sessions that I've done with friends um, on myself and, and, with, and having friends work on me and working on other people. What I realized was that I wasn't loving myself unconditionally. I loved myself conditionally. It was a reflection of the world around me, right? I mean, we're pretty much in Western society, we're raised like that. It's just like, well, we will appreciate you when you achieve X, Y, and Z. And so I embody that. You know, I would be very hard on myself for my failings and be happy when I achieve something. But then you realize, well, that doesn't last very long. That happiness because of your most recent success is fleeting. And then, of course, as we're on this path, we learn, well, that's because that is all of the ego mind. So what's left then if you take away the ego mind? And so that's the journey, right? Well, okay, then what am I and what's inside of me? And what I realized, and, and this was because of an a, um, experience I had uh, with Jesus, like where he pulled me across that veil, and he let me feel that unconditional love. And I thought, wow, well, if he let me feel it. It's not just so that I could feel it, so that I could say, okay, when I die, I'm going to feel that. Great. It's got to be because it's here now. And so I made it my mission to find that. And so this has been a lot of self-work to, uh, to kind of tease out all the shadow sides of me and saying, okay, so if that you have that insecurity, own it. You know, don't push it away. Um, just own it and say, okay, and now that you own it, if you really don't like it, start working on it, start changing yourself. And if you're not motivated to change it, then just accept that it's there and love it. So I had a dream where I was locking, <laughs> locking uh, parts of myself in a closet where we used to uh, keep our dirty laundry. Yeah. So you don't have to be forward to figure that out, right? So I'm <laughs> locking away those less desirable parts of myself. I right. don't want to air the dirty laundry. <laughs> and so that was one of the more visual clues I got that just yeah. said, take out the laundry, air it, you know, mm, let it see yeah. the light of day, right. own it. And then I was like, wow, I have so much more energy to even get through the day because I'm not beating myself up, starting with all my dirty laundry. So it doesn't mean that you don't try to improve yourself. It doesn't mean you don't work on yourself, but your starting point, instead of being like from 
uh, down at the bottom of a 10-foot hole in the ground, you're starting at ground level. It's like, yeah, okay. So that's kind of how, you know, my journey to unconditional self-love has been a long one. Um, But it's really changed me. And then what I realized is that, wow, now inner peace is not elusive. It's not dependent on who's around me. It's not dependent on the perfect job or the perfect this. It's, it comes from inside me. So then what you realize is you start changing the world around you. And um, this is actually a lot of the people I work with too. Self-love is just one of the key elements that like, we all need to work on to change our lives. Because when you get that, that's like the first building block. And we can then really build a much more peaceful life on top of that. Yeah, so true. Um, So self-love in a way, it's more of this unlearning work than learning, isn't it? Exactly, so much so. In your book, Everyday Mystic, Daily Messages for a Life of Love, Peace and Joy, there are some wonderful and meaningful messages that I read and resonated a lot with my heart. So I have them here in front of me. The first one that I wrote is when you say, the more you accept that you cannot control others, the more peace you bring into your life. And then my question is, how do we know when we are choosing to help other people in need rather than trying to control them? So... Let me think about that for a minute, Uh, because, you know, as a mother and as a friend and as, you know, just a person within any society, we're constantly faced with that, right? You know, we see somebody um, who's really struggling and maybe we've done some work on ourselves, so we might see a path forward for them. So... I think the first step, though, is to identify where our ego is in that wanting to help. So is it because we think we just know better because we're so smart, because we've been on the path maybe a little bit longer? And if that's the case, then I think we need to just step back and to uh, because once once it's the ego in charge you're trying to control the situation. You're trying to control their life. You know, and it's, I think it's David Hawkins who says, the best gift you could give to humanity is raise your own level of consciousness. Um, so I think that's the difference. And the other key, if you're trying to suss out like what's me trying to help and offer support and loving guidance versus control is how vested are you in whether the person does what you say. So you can say, hey, you know, this has worked for me, um, which by the words are much better words than like, you should do this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this is what's worked for me. And if you can walk away from that conversation, totally at peace, like not vested in whether or not they do that. Not then go back home and get on the phone with your other friend and go, you know, 
they should do this, but I know them. They're not going to. They never do. <laughs> so that's control. That's wanting to control the situation. And so it's always about the role of the ego in that process. So in a way, it's, it's not being interested in, um, in changing the situation one way or another. You just wish for the best and you, you try to uh, maybe give suggestions. But like you said, there's, there's no forcing. You're not trying too hard. Exactly. And what it is ultimately is honoring their free will. If we believe in a source energy that has granted us free will, and that is my belief, um, and I know that that source energy respects my free will, then I'm being asked to do and to extend that courtesy to everybody else in my life. Yeah, yes. You also wrote, reach for a miracle. You must reach for the impossible while things are still possible. That's beautiful. The question I have here um, is, what would be an example of an impossible thing that all of us should reach for? Okay. So what should we be reaching for before it's too late, in other words? Like in, yes. in terms yes. of that. Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, I hate to bring up the virus, but we're right here, you know, the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, <it's> so <laughs> here's something, and, you know, many will disagree with me, but I think healthcare should be a right in America, right? <laughs> mm, so yeah. how about we reach for that before we are struck with a crisis where then, you know, we don't have the appropriate materials or people don't go to the doctor because they can't afford to go, you know, in spite of healthcare, health insurance, maybe they're... Um, deductible is too high. Um, so that's one thing. But another is, how about world peace? You know, it's not too big a goal. What the problem is, we don't actually reach for peace. We accept that we can't have it globally because of the differences. So if we can't imagine it, we can't have it. And then Maybe it does become too late at some point, and I, I'm hoping not. You know, I'm hoping that that people are all working toward higher levels of consciousness, and at some point, we will try things like sending love as opposed to sending rockets. Mm. Wow, wow, I love that, Teresa. Would you say that the world peace? The way state of world peace starts with individual inner peace? I would. I would say we cannot have a peaceful world without peaceful individuals. And if we can have peace within ourselves and within our own families, how do we expect to have peace between nations? Mm. It's right. impossible. Yeah, I agree. Because we can't even get it right within you know, a family where you're all born mm. together, you're the same nationality, <laughs> same culture, you True. speak the same language, <laughs> you have the same economics. Uh, so that's a good impossible to begin with, right? Inner peace. I think so. Why? Yeah, I don't think uh, it's not out of reach, only because I know I've walked that path. And it's taken me a long, long time. But hopefully, my journey can help shorten the journey for others. Mm, oh yeah, we can 
we can help one another. Like Ram does, he says that we can walk one another home. We are oh, walking yeah. each other home. It's beautiful I what he says. I love that saying. Yes, it's so beautiful. And that's true, isn't it? Like if you find inner peace, I find, and then we can just, uh, yeah, we can help people around us. Exactly. You can tell me what you've learned. I'll tell you what I've learned. And, and hopefully some of that will, you know, get incorporated into another life and we just keep moving. Yeah. You also said, fear not. You are comforted in the knowledge of your unity with God. Mm. My question is, what is to live without fear? And how do we know what fears are real and the ones that are illusions? Mm. So, interesting. Okay. I think the closer we get to God and the closer we get to love, like with loving ourselves, but also like the big grand love with a capital L, that's like another way I experience God. The less fear we innately have. Because you start living again on this God's jet stream and in God time. And so you start trusting that even an event that may seem like a negative thing from the outside is actually there for our learning and our deepening of our consciousness and the deepening of our inner peace. So I think that journey in itself just starts to dissipate fear. And then the other part of your question, though, is how do you know when fear is legitimate? And so that the answer to that question depends on the level of consciousness of the person ex who's experiencing whatever the situation is, okay? So if I'm walking down the street and I see a situation where I think, wow, that doesn't look safe and I'm feeling that in my body, then it's not about pushing past that going, oh no, I'm a spiritual person. I could just walk through that, you know, gunfight right there and not be injured. No, I mean, I'm not at that level of consciousness. <laughs> if I see that happening, I'm going to go hide. However, at another level of consciousness, at a high, much higher than where I am, I think you can actually pass by what would seem like a dangerous situation to me and actually not get injured. And I use as an example the book Left to Tell, Surviving the, Rw the Rwandan Holocaust. And the author, it's just such a beautiful story. I mean, after all this tragedy and horror that she experienced, I mean, she really raised her level of consciousness during the Holocaust. Um, and in spite of the terror that, and terrible acts that were committed against her family. And when she was finally freed from this house that she was hiding in, she was able to walk past some of these soldiers and it was almost like she wasn't seen. And so I'm probably not describing in the exact detail, but that was the feeling. And I, I read that book so, so long ago. So it's not the, the details aren't fresh in my mind, but I remember it was a dangerous situation. She had to walk past these men and she said it was almost as if she wasn't seen. And I thought, that's a different level of consciousness than where I am. <laughs> so 
That's why I say I think mm-hmm. the the reality of fear is dependent on what you consider fearful. And yeah. we bring in, we manifest our fears. True. And the thing about fear is that uh, it feels so real when it takes hold of our uh, minds. Just... It does. And then you have to take those precautions because that's the space. Like if, if you could feel it, then that's actually the vibration you're putting out into the universe. And you, it will result in a situation to be fearful of. So then it's wise to take the precautions, the practical precautions. Yeah. So in a way, we are creating our reality by being so fearful. And on the other hand, we have to be aware of uh, danger because that's real. That's absolutely. Yeah. And we have to be aware of our own level of consciousness and what we're capable of overcoming and not. Yeah. Right. I like that. Yeah. Just being realistic. In your book, Everyday Mystic, Finding the Extraordinary and the Ordinary, you talk about the seven stages of faith. I think you have doubt, betrayal, anger, bargaining, resignation, surrender, and then the seventh, it's faith itself. So those are based, of course, on my own experience where, you know, I had tremendous amount of doubt, but... I was always putting myself into situations that um, (laughs) caused me to need saving. (laughs) So, but that's like, maybe it's like many teenagers, maybe it's just me, you know, (laughs) having grown up in the Mm -hmm. um, 60s and 70s. So I would have a lot of doubt, but then I think, well, there is nothing else that can save me. You know, how am I not going to get pregnant this time? Or how am I, (laughs) you know, how am I going to die from taking this drug or driving like, you know, a lot of people did at that time, like completely intoxicated. But because I was in those situations, I would just say, okay, God, I need your help. But it wasn't a prayer like from my head. This was like, this was way down in my heart going, there is no other option. Like this has to manifest like as I'm seeing it and like, God, I need you to do this. But the doubt wasn't, again, it wasn't a straight trajectory. You know, it was this wavy line that goes up and down, up and down. Or maybe I did something that needed saving and um, and everything would go my way. And I'd be like, ah, look at that. I'm pretty lucky. You know, <laughs> right. I'll do the same thing again and think, ah, that probably wasn't God. That was, that was just me. I'm lucky. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny journey. Um, you know, a lot of people don't get what they want when they pray and then they feel like God betrayed them or they get angry. I never felt that way because I always at some level took responsibility for my role in the situation. And if God didn't pull through for me, well, then I'm not going to sit there being a victim. I now have to take my own steps. So I always feel like at these stages like betrayal and anger, that if you feel betrayed by God because he did the opposite of what you wanted him to, one, understand that he probably has a better plan than you did. But if you can't even get there, then just let it go and move on. Start creating the life you want or start changing your behavior so that you don't need this God who doesn't seem to fulfill your wishes. You know, and that's where I say, like, I 
have to take responsibility for my own actions in each of those situations for which I need, needed saving. And then there's bargaining. So bargaining is a fun, all right, we've all done this. Okay, God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. (laughs) That is funny, right? (laughs) It's a funny one, right? So (laughs) a lot more times for me, anyway, you know, God would hold up his side and I wouldn't hold up mine. And I'd be right back at the bargaining table as if I had to like a leg to stand on. So that's a funny one. But, you know, again, it's see how it's working for you. If it doesn't seem to be working, then... You know, again, push God aside and just do it yourself, Mm, you know, and stop putting responsibility on everybody else, whether it's God or this person or that person. Just get on with it. And then. And then you have five resignation. Resignation. Yeah. So I think kind of resignation and surrender are, um, are a bit similar. You kind of resignation is like you give up trying to ask God for help since he doesn't seem to give you what you want anyway. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, wow. go on your way. You know, again, my feeling was, well, I'm not going to give up asking because what if just this one time he does this for me? And anyway, he, you know, I say he, by the way, and I don't believe God is a masculine energy. I believe it's in the non-gendered energy. Um, it's so far past our uh, need for a dualistic vision of it. But anyway, the point being that what did I have to lose? What to be embarrassed that I say I prayed to God for this uh, because it was my only alternative and then to feel humiliated because you know, maybe somebody could scientifically prove there's no such thing as God, which obviously they haven't yet. But, you know, there's a lot of arguments on both sides. But I thought, what do I have to lose by asking? So I never resigned. But, you know, that is a stage. And then when you finally get to surrender, this is the place where life starts getting easier. Because you stop telling God what you want. You stop bargaining with him. You know, you've a little bit resigned to the fact that maybe he's there, maybe he's not. But if he is, you start to realize if you can connect all the dots that he's actually doing for you the things that make your life better. So maybe it's just time to pay attention. And the more of that you do, and for me, I needed to write these things down. So each time something would happen where, you know, there was a miracle or something that I'd prayed for came to pass, I would be able to kind of look back and connect the dots and see, at least for my life, was that the result of luck or was it something so totally extraordinary that there's no other explanation? And the book is full of those examples. And then you really, then you have what I call faith. And mine, by the way, is not like a rock solid. It it still varies. Like I tend to need a lot of proof. And you learn that the whole universe is designed to give you both what you want and what you need. But though at that point, you start realizing because you've done enough ego work that you really want to just surrender all your wants and desires to the divine so that it's the divine plan that you just live as opposed to some plan that you had 
designed in your brain. And that's, that's a level of, of surrender and faith that it's not easy, but it's doable. Again, I know only because I'm not in any way special and I've seen the effects in my life. I won't say it's rock solid. Every single thing I do is completely surrendered, but I have learned enough to know that surrendering is the path to my highest good. Wow. That makes so much sense to my heart. Uh, do you also use the word acceptance? Do you connect surrender of faith to acceptance? Um, I do. Because when you're surrendered you, and, and you have faith, you're accepting what is. And that's an important thing because, you know, back to the inner peace, when we don't accept what is, we have a lot of turmoil in our life because then we're, okay, we have to change this. We get angry, we get you know, incensed and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, acceptance is a whole other level, but it is, it's about surrendering to what is. Would you like to add anything or perhaps uh, read a passage in one of your books. Teresa, before I begin asking you my final, final questions, okay. <laughs> the double final. Um, I don't think I'd like to read anything, but I will share one message that I received in meditation, which was one of the key messages for me as I walked my path. And it was... God saying, when you judge, you are so condemned. You are not meant to carry the weight of that judgment. Mm, wow. That is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It was a powerful one for me because I, again, being in the ego was very judgmental and very justified in my judgment. Oh, know? yeah. Oh, so yeah. I would always go back to that. Yeah. And say, this is not my job. Right. It, the judgment has a lot to do with blaming and finding fault in others Completely. all the time. Right. Completely. So my final questions to you, unrelated, but perhaps related to the topic. How do you define success? What is success to you? Oh, so to me, success now is being at peace, to living a life that is infused with love peace, and joy, no matter what is going on around you. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That I wasn't perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. No, it's a, yeah, I mean, the, the hardest lesson was to, to learn, one, that there was a separation between my ego self and my spirit self, like my ego self and my true essence. Because I had been led to believe that what I thought was me was actually all this thing that I now learned was an ego self that I wanted to get rid of. So then what was left? So I think the whole ego lesson is a very, very hard one to learn. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, if you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life? I have to say probably not. I mean, I really I feel like I'm at a place where I really am at peace and, and um, I have a great relationship with my children and my husband. I 
adore my friends. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm at a good place. Wow, I love that answer. And in a way, it's almost like uh, it has been said before, um, it's dying before we die. And maybe yes. inner peace or peace might be that state of mind of dying before, I mean, before losing the body, we just are in that perfect state. Already. Well, that's such a good point, because that, I think, is what began my journey when Jesus pulled me across the veil, that that dividing line by, that's just right here, it's right next to each one of us, you know, it's just going from a state of not unconditional love into a state of unconditional love. And once we do that, that's what death feels like. That's exactly what he let me experience. And so my mission when I came back was to just do that for me. I want to be in that state all the time. I know I didn't cross over there just to know what it felt like to die. I mean, it does. It feels great. And so I'm also not afraid of that. But, but I, it, there was a bigger message, the message that he gave me at, when he did that. He told me about the meaning of life. He said, it's so simple. It's all about love. So uh, I think that's our, our journey. That's interesting. I hear that over and over and over again yeah. by yeah. everyone that I talk to. Yes, and it doesn't matter what tradition they come from, who the messenger right. is, it's always the same message. Yes, the same message. That's right. Um, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Mm. That the meaning of life is very simple. It's all about love. That's number one. Um, that when we can let go of our ego and love ourselves unconditionally, our life becomes much happier. And that I do believe that there is something bigger than us that we're a part of and that enables us to um, create in this world and that we have a choice as to what we create. Mm, yeah, I like that, that we have a choice, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Teresa, for this conversation. It has been peaceful. That's the word, really. Great. So thank you so much for your presence. I felt it throughout, throughout the conversation. Yes, yes. And thank you so much for, for providing this opportunity and doing what you do so these messages can get out there. And um, if people want to learn more, they can get my books on Amazon or go to TeresaJoseph.com. Mm, that was my last, last question. Okay. <laughs> where, where can we find more information about you? So that will be your website and Amazon. Is there yes. any other place? No, that's the, I mean, I, I'm not a huge social media user. So those are the two places that are the best. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Teresa. And we'll talk Thank soon. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Teresa Joseph, please visit her website, teresajoseph.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.